Okay, everybody, welcome to a very, very, very special episode of the Buff and Blue Review. We are joined by Alana Myers-Taylor. Alana, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. It truly is an honor to be joined by one of the greatest Olympians of all time, and more importantly for us, a fantastic GW alumna. Well, thanks for having me. Always proud to represent GW. All right. So you just wrapped up an amazing few weeks in Beijing, uh, bronze in the two woman Bob slice, silver in the mono Bob. How are you feeling after a great performance? Tired. <laughs> um, so it's been a bit of a whirlwind. Uh, of course, I'm traveling around with my toddler too. Um, he's two years old. So, you know, the, the whole Olympic experience was just crazy. It's definitely been a different experience than ever before. And I've been to multiple Olympics now, but this COVID games has just been a whole new experience. So, um, you know, still trying to wrap my head around what actually even happened, uh, but trying to get some good recovery in at the same time. Uh, so yeah, let's go off of that. You talked about how these COVID Olympics and how different they were. Why don't you just do a little compare and contrast with these games, some of the other games you were at? Yeah, so um, coming into these games, actually, China had stick, strict requirements about even entering the country. So we had multiple COVID tests we had to pass, and we passed all of those with flying colors. And then once we were actually in China, we were all in what's called a closed-loop system. So normally at Olympics, you have more freedom to go out into the town, to see the local sites and things like that and explore and also you have the ability to go to different venues, see different athletes and all these types of things. So we can go watch events and things like that. But because it was a closed loose loop system, we had no ability to go out in Beijing or see anything. So, you know, I was there for almost a month and have seen like pretty much nothing of Beijing. <laughs> so very different experience. Um, our only interaction with the local population was the volunteers who are great by the way. Uh, but definitely within, uh, the village and within the different closed loop systems, we had to be tested once to twice a day, depending on how your test results are going. I actually tested positive two days after landing in China and then had to undergo not only isolation, but after I got out of isolation, two times a day COVID testing um, just to make sure that I was clear of the virus and uh, able to compete. Yeah, so when you arrived, you not only had to manage the stress of an upcoming Olympic race, having a case of COVID, and a toddler with you. How did you balance all that successfully? You know, my husband's on the men's team. Uh, so that was really helpful too. And he's one of the most positive people I've ever met. So he just kept us positive the whole time, reminding me that, hey, we're here to do a job, but we can do this. Like things are difficult right now, but we have the ability to overcome this. We have the ability to get through this um, and, and just doing everything I can. And also, you know, I'm not afraid of, of reaching out for help when I need it. So I work with two sports psychs and a psychiatrist back at home, just making sure mentally I could overcome uh, the situation. So yeah, it must have been an amazing honor to be chosen as the flag bearer for the USA. Can you just kind of talk about that experience, like getting that news, everything? Yeah, well, I got the news the same day as I got the news that I tested positive for COVID. So <laughs> it was a, like a double whammy, you know? Um, so it's a huge honor because you get elected by your fellow Team USA teammates. So um, to know that they think of me in that kind of regard and had elected me, like that was a huge honor in and of itself. Uh, but the coolest thing about that experience is then because I couldn't walk, I got the opportunity to hand it off to Brittany Bow, who's an incredible human. Um, if you don't know her story, look it up because she's one heck of a person. Um, and I got to hand off that honor to her and, and she representing Team USA proudly walking into those opening ceremony. It was a bittersweet kind of, 
situation for me because I wasn't able to walk myself. But if I couldn't walk, that was the best case scenario for sure. Yeah. So this year you had to compete in not just the team event of bobsleigh and the new mono bob. Um, what's the, what are the differences in preparing for a team event and a solo run like mono bob? So mono bob was just added to the games this Olympics. Um, and it's the first time I just started competing in actually in a year ago. Um, it's one person in a bobsled. Um, bobsleds are way about the same as our two man sleds. They're kind of heavy, um, but it's just a crazy little sport. Uh, it's typically a sled we use for development pilots when you're first learning how to drive, but they turned it into Olympic discipline. So I knew it was going to be a challenge. I knew it was going to be not without its difficulty because these things drive like crazy. Um, a two man bobsled is kind of like driving a car on ice. A monobob is driving like a motorcycle on ice. These things are skittish, they're light, they're hard to control. Um, and I think you saw that in some of the races, like the lines were all over the place. But I think it's really cool for the sport because we also got to see a lot of different disciplines. We got to see a lot of different nations competing. Um, and, and so that was pretty cool, but it was crazy. Uh, but it was really cool to have the opportunity now to medal in two different disciplines. Uh, so, yeah, you mentioned how you may not have had as much experience with the monobob. So did you kind of come up training with the monobob when you first started or what really was your experience with it like? No, I actually just started driving a monobob a year ago um, when I started learning how to drive bobsled. We didn't have monobobs. So I just started in a two man and had actually driven four man sleds. And so for a long time, me and another group of girls had fought to have four man included in the Olympics for women. Uh, men have had the two man and the four man discipline since the twenties. Um, women have only had the two man discipline since 2002. So we wanted two opportunities to compete. And so we fought for four women um, and they gave us monobob instead. So, you know, my experience was mostly driving the bigger sled, which is much easier to drive than a monobob. So competing in this race, you know, there was a lot of girls who had much more experience in a monobob per se than I did, even though I'd been driving a sled, bob sleds a lot longer. Yeah. Uh, at GW, you were actually a softball player during your time here. Now you compete in bobsled, a much more extreme and very different sport. Uh, can you talk about your transition to bobsled? Yeah, um, so I wanted to go to the Olympics since the age of nine and going to GW, I thought was going to give me the best shot playing softball. Then I played professionally. Uh, but then when I had an Olympic softball tryout, it was just an absolute disaster of a tryout. So I knew I was going to make the team, um, but needed something else to try and make the Olympics in. Um, and my parents actually saw bobsled on TV and were like, hey, why don't you try this sport? I was like, sure, why not? I was strong, fast, and athletic, and that's what they look for for bobsledders. So I just Googled it, emailed the coach, and got invited to a tryout. Um, when I started bobsledding, you know, I had no idea what was going on. Nobody does when they start. Um, and from that process, it was really about learning as much as I can. Like, I didn't even own a winter coat when I started bobsledding. So I had to learn everything from scratch. Um, it was really a humbling experience, you know, to come in and, and have so much success in softball outside of the Olympic realm, um, it was really a humbling experience to come in and, and have to basically start from scratch and, and learn everything um, from the bottom and, and work your way slowly up to the top. Unfortunately, I was able to, but it took a lot of, a lot of hard work. Yeah, you mentioned wanting to be an Olympian since you were nine years old. Um, when you got the call or were told that you're gonna be in the Vancouver Olympics in 2010, what was your first reaction like? How did that feel? Oh my gosh, I was through the roof. Um, and 
honestly at the time I thought like that was the pinnacle for me like I had made the Olympic team doesn't matter like that's all I wanted to achieve and I had made it and, and that was good enough <laughs> so I wanted to go into those games and medal I knew we had an outside chance to medal um, we weren't favorites by any shot but I was just excited to be on the team when we got there I was excited to be there and I think that's what led to a really good performance is because I was just happy to be there and I didn't have too much pressure or anything like that so um, you know I finally when I was named to that Vancouver team felt like I had lived the dream of dreams and you know I, it was one of those things where I don't even know what to do with myself, but uh, I just went after it and unfortunately it ended up with a medal. I was going to ask him, how do you stay focused like on achieving that next plane of excellence when you get to a point like you had with Vancouver where you feel like everything you kind of worked for up to that point is now here, but then you still have you know 10 plus years of career left after that? Yeah, I think for me, it was all about finding different challenges. And for me, within the sport of bobsled, the next challenge after Vancouver was to drive one of these sleds and see if I could be successful in the front seat. And then after that, won a medal there. Then it was to see, well, can I win a gold medal? And then after that, it was like, well, can I do it with a kid? You know, I've always loved challenges and love, you know, the seek of excellence in that regard and overcoming obstacles and things like that. So I just, there was always a new challenge to be had. And that's what kept me going throughout the sport through all, all these years. Uh, so bobsledding reaches like over 90 miles an hour speeding down the track. Just what the first time you went down, just talk about that moment. The first time you oh, slept. The first, <laughs> first time you go down, it's just crazy. Um, going down, you go down in the back of the sled the first time and going down in the back feels like you're shoved in a metal garbage can and kicked down a rocky hill. Like it is not comfortable <laughs> at all. But so after my first time, I was like, okay, what the heck was that? But I also knew, hey, this is also a shot at the Olympics. So try again. And you keep trying, you keep going. And, um, you know, soon enough, you fall in love with it. And for me, within a couple of days of doing the sport in the back, I knew I wanted to be in the front of the sled. I knew, hey, in the back of the sled, you sit with your head in between your knees. You can't see anything. So I knew I wanted to try and drive these things. Um, and that was going to be my next challenge. And, and driving, even though the back feels that bad, driving in the front feels like you're flying. Like it's just smooth. It's gliding. It's one of the most magical feelings I could ever think of. Yeah. So what was it like uh, on the other side? What was it like the first time in the front seat? The first time in the front seat, you were crazy nervous because you start at lower parts down the track and then you work your way up. Um, but you're just crazy nervous. You're like, oh, I don't know how this sled works. Uh, but once you cross the finish line, you're just like, oh, my gosh, that was so amazing. I want to go again. And as a driver, when you're starting out, that's all you want to do is you just want to keep going and going. And your mind just runs 100 miles per hour because you're trying to process what happened. But it's so much fun. So uh, what is something that more casual fans of bobsledding or other sliding sports like skeleton might not understand or not appreciate about the sport? Uh, most people don't know that we actually drive these sleds. Um, there is a steering mechanism in the bobsled and we actually are driving the sleds. It's not just leaning. And in the back of the sled, if they are leaning like that, it could actually cause us to crash. So I think Cool Runs, cool Runnings kind of did us a disservice in that. Like we don't sit in bathtubs or anything like that. Um, but it is definitely, it takes a lot of skill, a lot of experience and time to really develop that driving skill. Uh, so Cool Runnings, like good movie, bad movie. What do you think? Oh, great movie. I think that's how most of the world knows about bobsled. Um, it's part of the reason why I got into bobsled. You know, when you Google it, that's what comes up. So um, I think it's a great movie. It's not entirely accurate, but it's a Disney film. So 
Take it for what it's worth. Uh, now, you also are have competed in yet another sport featuring two international caps for USA Rugby. How did you get into rugby, and what, what's it like competing on an international level for another sport? So, um, at, during right before the 2014 Olympics, uh, we were out in Chula Vista, California training, um, which is actually where the USA rugby team trains as well. We were out there just doing our dry lane training, running and lifting and those type of things. The rugby coach saw me and was like, Hey, I think you could be really good at rugby. Why don't you give it a try? And I was like, well, I'm kind of busy right now preparing for this other thing, you know, the Olympics. Um, but I'll give you a call after the games. And then after the games, you know, I wasn't too happy with my performance in Sochi. So I was looking for something else. Um, and I gave them a call back. They invited me out to Chula Vista, and, and then I started trading with the team. I was fortunate enough to compete with them. Um, it was a really cool experience. Uh, it, it was really good for me at the time to get into something different and see how another national team operates. Um, and also a huge honor to just represent your country in any fashion. But at the end of the day, it was kind of one of those sports where I thought rugby was a summer sport, where it was just during the summers, but it was a year-round sport, so it was really came down to me having to choose between bobsled and rugby, and I wasn't willing to step away from bobsled just quite yet. Is it is it common for Team USA to pull or recruit athletes from other um, USA teams? Like, is the bobsled team, is are there a lot of people who started in uh, another sport and moved to bobsled to reach the Olympics? Or is that kind of, you know, more unique? Yeah, and bobsled, most people get into it after college. So we're pulling from a whole bunch of different sports um, to try and convert them into bobsledders. So I started when I was 22, but that is actually pretty young for people to actually start in a bobsled. A lot now are starting when they're 26, 27, those kind of ages, um, to just even starting in the back of the sled. Ideally, we would be able to get younger and younger athletes, but just the mechanics of our sport, how long you have to be on the road, how heavy the sleds are, like it doesn't make sense for younger athletes to really get into it. So we pull a lot from other sports. Now, if you ask like a USA track and field or a USA rugby, they would prefer us not to take their athletes. Um, they're always happy when athletes come from bobsled and get into their sports, but they don't want to give up their athletes freely, but we try and recruit them anyways. Yeah. So you've, uh, you've competed everywhere around the world from Pyeongchang to Lake Placid. Um, do you have any favorite locations that you've completed in or anything? any uh tournament or anything like that that's especially notable um we compete every year in st Moritz, switzerland and uh that place holds a special place in my heart because that's where me and my husband got engaged um and it's just a beautiful gorgeous location so um it's definitely one of those places that outside of bobsled i don't know if i would have ever gone and it is just stunning do you guys have any favorite spots there um, I mean, we could be in the Swiss Alps, so just even the bobsled track is just one of my favorite spots because it's just, it's a track that's cut out of snow and ice every single year. Most of our other tracks have a cement base and there's ice overlaid on it. Um, so we don't necessarily require snow everywhere except there. There we have to have snow to compete. Oh, yeah, I was oh. just going to ask, because um, you mentioned your husband too, you guys won a medal together at one point. Can you talk us through like, what it was like training and competing with your husband? Yeah, um, you know, my husband's my best friend. He's uh, my coach. He's my biggest supporter, everything like that. So competing with him has always been 
one of the most special memories I have in bobsled. Um, we made the national team together as a four-man crew uh, back in 2014-15 season, and that was probably one of the greatest races of my bobsled career, to be able to make the men's team and to be able to do it with my husband. Like, that's a very special thing, and I, I can't think of many athletes who've said they've had the chance to compete with their husbands. Yeah, um, sorry. Uh, <laughs> obviously, some people, you know, understand that these trips are work trips, going to beautiful places. You have to do a lot of work. But what's it like in the Olympic Village in a non-COVID year when you can have more freedom? You know, in the Olympic Village, it's really cool because you get to meet people from around the world. Um, you get to trade pins. You get to sit with different people. Like I remember Pyeongchang, like the big thing was trying to get – the opportunity to trade pins with North Korea or to sit with them, that didn't happen. <laughs> but at least even the temp to know that there's people in this village that we would never have contact with otherwise um, was pretty cool. And and we did get to sit down with like a team from Pakistan in Pyeongchang and have a meal with them, which was pretty cool, especially given what's going on in the world sometimes. Um, you know, our countries don't always align. And, and it is one of those things where sport is really unifying the world because we have the opportunity to serve as representatives of the U.S. and it humanizes everybody. You know, I think people have some preconceived notions about what people are like from certain countries, but when you're able to sit and have a meal with them, like all that goes out the window and you realize people are just people. And, and in the Olympic sense, everybody's out there just trying to do their best to represent their country to the best of their ability. So it's a really cool experience. What's your pin collection like? Any favorites? Uh, I did not trade a single pin from this Olympics um, with the COVID isolation. And then with, I wasn't staying in the village this Olympics, um, but just with everything going on, I wasn't able to trade any pins. Um, but in previous Olympics, like I've gone off and, and tried to get the most creative pins possible. I have uh, pins from Cayman Islands, from Nigeria, from Jamaica, uh, from all the small nations uh, that usually don't have a lot of winter sports. So those are probably the most selective and, and the coolest pins I have. That's very cool. So another thing you talk about a lot is getting people into winter sports, uh, especially maybe people who don't live in an area where that's super accessible. So a lot of our audiences in DC, obviously we go to GW, this is a GW podcast. Do you have any advice for people like us or people who may live in a climate that doesn't have as much snow, how they can kind of dip their toes into winter sports? I think that's the biggest thing is, is they're more accessible than you think. Um, there's skating rinks all over the place and speed skating is one of the major sports in the winter Olympics. It's, as well as figure skating. Now, most people might be a little old for figure skating, but, you know, going out there and being willing to try new things is super important. Um, bobsled is also one of those things you can try later in life, even skiing and snowboarding, all these types of things. Um, but it's about, you know, being willing to take the risk and being willing to go out there and try and starting small, you know, um, Aaron Jackson, who's a gold medalist in the 500 um, from this year's games, didn't start speed skating until 2016. And now she's an Olympic gold medalist. Um, so, you know, knowing that those stories exist, knowing that people can get into it and have success in a relatively short amount of time, it, it should give you the confidence just go out there and try. And yes, you're going to fall, you're, you're going to fail at times, but the pursuit of it is worth it. And going after it and seeing if it's for you is definitely something that's worth it. Yeah. Uh, oh, Henry, do you have? A question? Yeah, I was wondering, because you've talked about in other interviews and such, like the color barrier in Olympic sports. I think you once said mm -hmm. they're like, the winter's sports are as white as the snow. 
Mm-hmm. Um, can you think of a time like in your career that you faced a, a barrier like that in sports and, and how you broke through it? Yeah, I think in our sport in particular, there it's still a sled manufacturer. Bobsleds are pretty technical pieces of equipment. Um, and you can have a huge advantage if you have the fastest bobsled. Like it, it makes a big difference. So there's three components of bobsled, the push, the drive, and the equipment um, that make for a fast run. You can have the fastest push and the f- best drive. And if you don't have the best equipment, you're not going to win the race, which is pretty crazy. So there's all types of people who make bobsleds. Um, and when the faster bobsled manufacturers refuses to sell to black people um and so that is a barrier that my sport continues to face um it's it's one of those kind of things that you know you know you don't have access to this equipment so you've got to go other routes if you want to get it um which is it's just kind of crazy that that's still allowed to exist in 2022 but it's a reality of our sport and that's why like you know obviously race could be a divisive topic these days but the reason like it's important to discuss race within those contexts is because those discrimination, those discriminatory policies still exist within our sport. And it does make a difference. Yeah. You mentioned a lot of that stuff, including the bobsled company in your piece, uh, even Olympic medals can't save you, which was published on the team USA website. Um, you describe your racism with or sorry, your history with racism in the bobsled community in such powerful detail. How, how do you find the words and the strength to write about such an important issue? Um, I think for a long time, it's been an issue that people haven't been able to talk about. And I felt like we needed to shed light to it. Um, And also, I was at a point in my career where, you know, so what, this bobsled manufacturer is not going to sell to me. I've won a couple medals, even if it meant, oh, I get blacklisted from the sport, I was going to be fine. Like nothing, nothing was going to hurt me in that perspective but I felt like it was important especially for those athletes that are still in those systems that rely heavily on those land manufacturers that rely heavily on those coaches who say uh, black athletes don't belong in the front of the sled I felt it was important to speak up for them and speak up on their behalf so uh, that's why I penned it that's why I put it out there and you know reception has been really mixed Um, they did open up an investigation from our international federation about the sled manufacturer, but I'm pretty sure that didn't lead anywhere. It's a lot of, he said, she said, so it's kind of hard to really prove anything without like video evidence or anything. Um, so I don't think a lot of the investigations led anywhere, but it's important that people speak out and, and know that these are issues facing black community within bobsled. Uh, yeah. So um, obviously you're definitely a, an activist for racial issues here at GW, we have had our fair share of sort of moments where this act type of activism would be appreciated. We've definitely had some incidents in the past few years. You know, there have been professors saying stuff. Even the former president had a few brushes with some unfortunate choices of words. What was your experience like as an African American woman here at GW, and what advice do you have for us here at the university level in fighting that sort of racism and injustice? You know, at GW, um, it's kind of kind of crazy because I feel like at times I was kind of isolated from the general population because I was an exercise science major, because I was an athlete. Like, I didn't have a lot of interaction with the general student body, um, especially as a softball player, because you spend so much time on the road. Like, I, I feel like my experience was kind of separate from the rest of the community, but I had a great experience at GW. Um, so it is unfortunate to hear about some of the things that have happened over the past few years because I would have wouldn't have guessed that um, now I did have a softball coach that was 
you know, less than ideal. And I think that's well documented. Um, we had a coach get fired for abuse and, and things like that. Um, and so there were some racial undertones there. But as far as the rest of my experience, I had a really great experience at GW and a uh, really great academic experience. Like I, I, the exercise science program at the time um, was top notch. I don't know how it is now. <laughs> I've been there, but, um, you know, I think the biggest thing is, you know, people do have preconceived notions uh, about other people based off of race, based off of gender and these types of things. And the biggest thing you can do as students is continue to fight for equity. And I think that's important. It's important to be able to speak out and be able to speak your truth and to be able to speak out for change. Um, and as long as students are working to actively change things, good things will happen. Yeah, thank you so much. And so on a, a kind of a, a different tact, a different tact, sorry. Um, Jimmy Reed, your teammate, posted his thoughts about the games to Instagram. And something that I found very interesting was he talked about how NBC restricts athletes from sharing personal content. And um, he said that they own every aspect of your experience as an athlete. Does this ring true to your experience with NBC of the Olympics? What is that relationship like? Yeah, so I think that's the biggest thing is within the IOC, the NBC pays for the rights to everything. So they own the rights to any video inside the venues. Um, and in our case, even this last Olympics, the venue included the hotel I was staying at. So like even when I was in the isolation hotel, I had to get permission from NBC to do other interviews um, with other broadcasting agencies, ABC, CBS, those type of things. Um, so they do own a lot of the rights. They, it is pretty restrictive of what you can post and what you could share and those type of things. But also it's complicated because they paid the IOC for these rights. And, you know, I think it's, I don't blame NBC for that. Um, you know, they have every right in the free market to request these rights and to pay for them and stuff. I think it's really more of an IOC issue. The IOC needs to figure out how they want to allow athlete expression um, and not give so much of our rights away. Um, and I think that's the biggest thing is, is I don't know how it is in other countries. I don't know if CBC or BBC has those same kind of rights, uh, but I do know NBC is one of the highest contracts within the IOC. So they've got a lot of liberties and, and as long as the IOC is allowing them to give away, to have all the rights, I think it's going to continue that way. Yeah. Uh, on a lighter note, I believe it was just your your son Nico's birthday. How, how's he doing? How's he feeling? He's great. Um, so he's two years old now. Uh, we had an Elmo theme party, which he completely slept through because he's jet lagged. <laughs> um, he's still a little jet lagged right now. Um, he was up at like four or five a.m. this morning, just out and about, and now he's back asleep. So um, we're still all kind of recovering from Beijing, um, but he's doing great and he's growing like a weed. Yeah. Uh, so some quick background on me. Uh, I have a sister named Sophie, who's two years younger, and she's on the autism spectrum. Um, your son, Nico, was born with Down syndrome, and he came with you and your husband to Beijing. Uh, mm -hmm. Sophie, I love her so much, but is the worst traveler I've ever met. Um, <laughs> how did Nico hold up going all the way to China? Oh, he actually is a great traveler as far as airplanes. Uh, cars, not so much. He's terrible in the car. But airplanes, he's really great with. And we've been really blessed because he's not hes not the baby that cries in the plane. And everybody's always so shocked when they travel near him. They're like, oh, my gosh, he's so good. I was like, yeah, he's hes great. Um, he's just cool as a cucumber like his dad. And he travels really well. He takes it all in stride. And he's just a trooper. Like, I couldn't have asked for a better 
first child because he has taken it all in and, and just gone with the flow. It's been really good. Yeah, I was going to ask for Nico. You know, he's got two Olympic parents. He's only two, but what what do you see in in, his, in Nico's Olympic future? If you, <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. Um, he likes Olympic weightlifting a lot, uh, which is scary because me and my husband are terrible at Olympic weightlifting. Um, but you know, for him, it's really about whatever makes him happy. I don't care what he wants to do in life, um, as long as you know he's happy and he's living a, a fulfilled life, so to speak. So. Um, I'm going to encourage him to do whatever he will play sports just because I think it's great for physical activity and for all the other hosts of regions, confidence, um, goal setting, those types of things that sports brings. But as far as any expectation to be an Olympian or anything like that, there's absolutely no expectation. Um, I would prefer he doesn't bobsled <laughs> sports, pretty brutal. Uh, but you know, I'm just going to encourage him to do whatever makes him happy. Uh, so we touched on some of the, a little heavier stuff about GW, but let's go. Let's go in a bit lighter angle. What were uh, what were some of your highlights here in Foggy Bottom when you were here at GW? Oh my gosh! I think what I didn't appreciate there, which I appreciate more now that I'm out uh, out of school, is how much there's different activities on campus. How much the world really comes to GW. Like I remember uh, while we we're there almost every presidential candidate comes through the campus and gives a speech at some point in time. Um, you've got all kinds of up and coming artists um, coming through the campus. And then even at Smith Center, you've got all kinds of really famous people who've already made it coming through. And like the amount of activities that come through, I don't know that there's anywhere else in the world that you can really get all of that at one place. I remember we saw Kanye West right when he was upcoming um, on, uh, at, on campus. Um, next to the GW Law Center. Like, it was just crazy to be able to see all these people come through and you don't really appreciate it until you're gone. Um, you don't really appreciate the fact that you had, back when I was there, Crossfire was filming on campus um, and, and you had all the presidential candidates and you're like, oh yeah, Joe Biden did speak there back in the day. And you're like, oh yeah, uh, Elizabeth Warren was there. And you just don't even realize how special that really is. Um, and, and I think that was the coolest thing about the GW experience that I took away. Uh, did you have any favorite spots around campus or in the city at large? I mean, I spent so much time at Smith Center. It's ridiculous. <laughs> um, but the coolest thing with softball is just, you know, I don't think they train like this anymore. I don't recommend people train like this for softball, but we used to do so many monument runs. We go run down by the Lincoln Memorial, run down by the Washington Monument, then down by the Capitol. I mean, come on, there's nowhere else in the world where you could do that, where you could just go on a, a couple mile run all across this very historic monument. It's like some of the experiences at GW are just unique. Yeah, mo the teams do still do that. We've been talking to the basketball teams a lot. That's definitely part of their training process i was gonna ask have you been back to gw uh since you graduated or how or how often do you come back yep um i actually usually right after the games i come back um you know i would have liked to come back sooner uh, but the past few years nobody was traveling much or anything like that but definitely uh, we'll be back at some point this year i'm um, always like to come back and try and catch a softball game or two because um, that's always holds a special place in my heart to see how well that program's done um, since I left and, and 
you know, has continued to grow. It, it's really cool. But um, I last time I was back, I was think was 2018. Um, I got my honorary doctorate. So that was really cool uh, to give a speech on the National Mall um, at graduation. So um, I don't know exactly when I'll be back, but definitely going to make a stop by campus soon. Yeah, so softball games all out on our second campus. Were you a Verney during your time here? Did you live out there? No, I didn't live out there, but I did work out at the Vern. Um, worked at the uh, exercise center out there and, and, you know, at the, yeah, just at the athletic complex out there. So that was my side hustle outside of softball. <laughs> um, did you ever live in Thurston? No, I never lived in Thurston. So when I was... A freshman, they put all the athletes in Madison. I don't know if they still do that, but um, Madison, Guthridge, then Newhall, then International. Yeah, Thurston just got knocked down our freshman year, and so yeah, we were the, we were the last group to live there. I think I'm the only one. <laughs> me and Katie are the only ones on this call who lived there, but it was it was something, especially in its last few years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, do you have any specific GW memories that stick out with the softball team or just anything about campus? Um, I think my fondest memories of the GW campus were just being able to go and support the other athletes, like being able to go to gymnastics meets, which, you know, in Georgia growing up, we didn't have that much access to gymnastics. There weren't teams in high school or anything like that where I'm from. Um, so being able to go gymnastics meets, being able to go volleyball games and soccer games and lacrosse and a lot of these sports that I didn't, I wasn't exposed to growing up, but even able to meet these athletes and have these incredible experience. Like it was really cool. Just spending a Saturday, when we weren't playing out in the Vern, um, watching soccer and, and sitting out there and, and studying and those types of things. Like, I feel like a lot of my experience at GW was either at some kind of athletic event or in, uh, <laughs> in the library. So, um, lots of studying, tons of studying. Uh, but other than that, it's just the people I got to meet there. It was just incredible. Uh, so yeah. Do you think there's anything we missed in this interview? Anything you want to talk about? Any fun story that you think would be good for the podcast? Um, no, I think, I think we've covered a lot of ground. <laughs> Amazing. Miss anything, but yeah. Yeah. So we have one last question that we always ask all of our interviewer interviewees and got a wide range of answers. It's what a little controversial. Or, yeah. Oh yeah. What was, or is your order at the GW deli, uh, a classic spot on campus? Ooh. I always went there for breakfast, so I only went there for breakfast. So it's just egg and cheese sandwich. Like that was it. Like <laughs> I never went there for any other time, which I don't know if that's even more controversial. But no, that is the norm. Yeah. <laughs> the the other thing is like I don't know. I spent a ton of money, a ton of my GW money at Ben and Jerry's and all the wrong things. So uh, uh, you know, GW Deli, just breakfast. That was it. Wait, there was a Ben, ben and Jerry's? Jerry's. What? Yes, there was a Ben and Jerry's. Yes, dude, it's Aww. gone downhill here. <laughs> it really has. <laughs> it's not. I mean, I think it was a, a problem though because you spent so much of your money on Ben and Jerry's and on uh, was an Italian restaurant in there, and there's also Coney Island. Um, you spend so much on junk, and then when it comes to the end of the month or the end of the semester, you're out of money. But it's because you've spent so much on Starbucks, and you just start. <laughs> <laughs> it's just not a good look. So I, it's actually probably a good thing that they got rid of Ben and Jerry's. I had a, a question for 
when it comes to the Olympics, like I love watching the Olympics. Tons of people do. But one of my favorite parts is like the Olympics fashion. Like I'm always like on the Ralph Lauren website, on the Nike website, like looking at all this stuff and you're wearing some Olympic merch right now. I was wondering like in all your games, do you have like a favorite piece that you've gotten? Oh boy. Uh, I mean, I would say now like the opening ceremony jacket, that's pretty special piece uh, because it's a flag bearer jacket and that's pretty unique to that position. Uh, but just in general, we had these jackets from Under Armour from 2010 and they're blue with white stars all over them. And like the sleeve has red and white stripes and they are the most gaudy things I've ever seen in my life, but I love them. It is like full on Captain America kind of vibes, but I absolutely love it. And that's probably my favorite piece ever. Yeah, that's, that's so cool. Thank you so much, Alana, for taking the time to talk with us. We cannot express our appreciation enough when you come back on campus next time you have to stop by so we can talk again in studio okay sounds good i'll be there <laughs> amazing thank you so much again yeah this was great i i learned a ton i had a great time <laughs> thanks so much i appreciate you guys having me and raise high of course raise, raise high. high as always <laughs>